Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 20. The last time that we met, we talked about real estate finance, and we talked about various different types of financing programs, just in general, if you will. This time, what we're going to be doing is talking about financial institutions. So essentially, we're talking about, you know, uh, if you will, banks, savings and loans, for the lack of a better word, the Federal Reserve Bank. So we're going to be talking about those various kinds of institutions, how the real estate market works, and uh, how, how the entire system sort of operates. So what we're going to do is start out first with just talking about the real estate economy, if you will, uh, to begin with. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, go over here. And uh, let me see, for example, here... Um, Okay, so what I'm going to do is talk about the, the general economy to start with. And what they do in this part of your chapter is they talk about just economic cycles. And because they don't have any kinds of charts or anything, I just kind of want to explain this in general terms. This is something that if you were in real estate finance or we were talking about real estate economics, we would go into more detail but the concept is, is that the economy constantly is changing. Uh, as an example, our interest rates are going up as I speak right now. Uh, to give you a rough idea, when I bought my first house, which was back in, I think, 1972, which is probably before many of you were born, the interest rate I was paying on a fixed rate 30-year loan was about 7.25%. The second house that I bought, I think we were paying somewhere around 8.5%. Over the years, I've seen interest rates that have gone up as high as 22%. In the late 70s and the early 80s, we had a huge amount of inflation. The Federal Reserve, which we'll talk about in a minute, was trying to combat something we called inflation. And uh, what ended up happening is they kept raising the interest rates, trying to essentially, if you will, take money out of our pockets so we wouldn't continuously keep bidding the prices of houses up because of cheap money. So I've seen the interest rates go up and down. I've seen the economy go back, uh, you know, expand and contract. I've seen times that, like we've had a few years ago in which uh, if you happen to have any house, it just seemed at the time that it didn't, regard, didn't make any difference what kind of a house it was. If you put it on the market, even if it needed to have work done on it or it was a fixer-upper, uh, you know, it would be basically on the market for maybe, uh, you know, a couple days before you knew it, you had offers to purchase the houses. I remember reading an article in the Sacramento Bee where they talked about there was a house that needed a lot of repair work. And I believe it was over in north part of Sacramento in the Del Paso area. And they had, according to the Sacramento Bee, I didn't make this up, there was something in the neighborhood of about 67 offers there were people making offers on properties because they were so afraid that if they didn't buy something today, they wouldn't be able to afford it tomorrow, that uh, people were making offers on property sight unseen. Uh, a couple, probably about almost three years ago, I was selling a house, and I remember getting offers from people, you know, full-price offers, because they were so afraid that the houses were going to disappear. They were full-price offers subject to them actually taking a look at them. They were actually asking their real estate agents that if anything fit their needs, go ahead and put an offer in on it. You've got my permission, you know, and, and, and that was happening on a regular basis. And the reason why is that the interest rates were very low, extremely low. Uh, 
it was not uncommon during that period of time if you had an adjustable rate mortgage to maybe be starting in the three and a half to four percent range to start your payments. Maybe a fixed rate, you might even get in the lower, uh, higher fours or high, uh, lower fives. So interest rates were very low, and the reason why at that time is that the Federal Reserve uh, uh, was in the process of stimulating the economy, and one of the ways that they can stimulate the economy or help us, you know. Uh, Make us want to go out and buy stuff, you know. So, and when we want to buy stuff, that creates jobs. People have to build houses, build cars, or whatever. But the way that they do that is by lowering the interest rate. Therefore, we have more money in our pockets, and we are more willing to turn around and buy stuff. So, anyway, I've seen that happen to where we are today, and this is just a couple of years later, where all of a sudden now houses are sitting on the market for a long period of time. Uh, we're talking about now, instead of people standing in line trying to buy houses, what we're doing is we're talking about how we can, you know, we're talking about something called the buyer's market. You know, a couple of years ago it was a seller's market where sellers could name their terms. Today we're talking about a buyer's market where buyers are basically uh, can pick and choose houses. They can make offers. In fact, right now, um, you know, sellers, if you are following the newspaper or a lot of the uh, TV uh stories that are on news shows, they're talking about how to stage your house, how to make it more attractive, possibly helping to pay some of the costs for buyers, uh, trying to lower the price of your home, become more competitive on the market. So we're talking about, so within a relatively short period of time, we've had the whole entire real estate industry turn around. I can remember again when I was getting ready to build my house about three years ago, where uh in the area where I live now, you would see all day long, you would see construction trucks, you'd see carpenters, electricians, people building pools, concrete trucks, uh, and it was a huge amount of people that were employed. In fact, I can remember trying to get to work, uh, probably leaving my house about 2.30 in the afternoon and just trying to get down from where I live to the main street could take me as long as a half hour if I was driving a car, not my motorcycle, but a car, bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, of all of those contractors coming down the hill that were working on houses. So the, the point here is the economy is constantly changing. It's expanding. It's contracting. It's doing this all of the time. And one of the organizations, let me see if I can do this, um, one of the organizations that has a key role in, in dictating what happens with the economy is called the Federal Reserve Banking System. Uh, the uh, chairman that we've had in the past, if you read the paper, was somebody by the name of Alan Greenspan. He was, had been appointed by, um, by the President of the United States. I don't know precisely exactly how many years that he served, but he served quite a long period of time. Our current Federal Reserve Chairman is somebody by the name of Bert Bernanke. Uh, the Federal Reserve is set up as a separate entity what they basically do is they control the monetary supply or the supply of money. They control this. And one of the charters that the Federal Reserve System has is trying to keep the economic system on a fairly even keel. In other words, so we don't have huge increases in prices and huge amounts of inflation and huge amounts of deflation. The idea behind it is that the Federal Reserve can go ahead and sort of temper that. And the way that the Federal Reserve does that is by controlling the interest rates in the economy. 
And they have several different tools that they use in order to control these interest rates. And one of the things I want to mention before I talk about these tools is to keep in mind that once the Federal Reserve chairman has been appointed by the President of the United States, which recently Bert Bernanke was appointed by uh, George Bush, once he's confirmed by Congress, then he serves for 14 years. And he ser- he's an in- their independent uh, entity, if you will. In other words, what happens is, is because they're appointed for such a long period of time, the concept behind that is they are, in, uh, they are insulated or protected from political influence in their decisions. So consequently, the President of the United States may appoint somebody who initially would be a Republican or a Democrat, but let's say a Republican. And maybe the reason why the President appointed them is because they felt that this individual, from a philosophical standpoint or an economic philosophical standpoint, had the same values, same beliefs as the President did. After they're in office, they they decide to make decisions different than the president does. The president can't go back in again and fire them. <laughs> you know, I mean, what the, what they do is they are going along and they are, they're looking. This Federal Reserve chairman is turning around and looking at the economy. They're getting tons and tons of data from all over the country. There are different districts that are set up. There's 12 different areas that represent the parts of the United States. And what they do is they're reporting economic data on a regular basis, what's happening in Texas, what's happening on the East Coast, the West Coast, all over the place. And then it goes before a committee that's chaired by the Federal Reserve Chairman. And they try as hard as they can to kind of look in that crystal ball that I talk about in a lot of classes, which nobody really knows how that crystal ball works, by the way, and predict what they think is going to be happening with the economy. And one of the things that's happening in the economy for us today is in the last number of years, we've gone from an economy that's just, you know, the United States to where we're in a global economy. So things that are happening in other countries have a dramatic effect on what's happening to us in the United States. We see that today with places like China. You know, in the past, the people that lived in China weren't really driving cars around. It was really a communistic type society. You know, people were really not of the entrepreneurial, you know, mentality, if you will. Well, all that has changed. Uh, China today is building an entire, uh, 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 if you will, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, but the, you know, middle income type people who are looking to buy cars. They're replacing their bikes with cars. China's now competing with us for fuel to drive those cars. That's one of the reasons why maybe we're paying more money for gas. So our economy is constantly changing. So it's a very difficult job to figure out what's going on on a regular basis. But what the Federal Reserve does is it says, you know what, one of the ways that we can control inflation is by how much money people have in their pockets. And to make this really simple for everybody to understand, the fact is is that we as an individual, okay, when we get paid our money, we have to use that money to do a lot of things with it. We have to buy groceries. We have to pay for gas for our car. We have to buy clothes. We have to do a lot of stuff. We have to buy houses, whatever. How much of that income we can dic- we can use to buy houses depending upon how high our house payments are going to be. You know, when you really think about it, and what controls the 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 uh, the, the, the amount of the house payment is the interest rates. So what ends up happening is, is, and I've said this in many times in classes, if we took an entire class of 40 or 50 people and said, you know what, a 3.5% interest rate, everybody in this room could afford to buy a hundred dollars or $200,000 house. No problem. 
because the payments would be low enough. What happens is, is that if I raise the interest rates from, say, 4% to 5%, I start losing people. Maybe I lose, you know, out of the 40 people, I may lose 10. I raise it to 4.5, I lose more people. And in reality, the reason why houses are sitting on the market today for a longer period of time is because people, the average people, cannot afford to buy those houses at for the same price <laughs> that the people had bought them before where they had lower interest rates. So, for example, if I have a house that's $300,000 that's for sale, maybe I bought it and I was only paying 4% interest, I could afford the payments. Take the same house, $300,000 house, and now the interest rates are 7%. I can't afford to buy, I can't afford to buy it anymore. It's that simple. What ends up happening in the economy is that if the interest rates are not going to come down so I can afford to buy it, what has to come down is the price. Okay? Because believe it or not, no matter what the price is, if, if we lower the price low enough, we will have people that are, that are ready, willing, and able to buy it. So the bottom line for all this is that the Federal Reserve constantly is, is, has the ability to put more money in circulation or take money out of circulation. And in order to do this, they have these tools. And by the way, the Federal Reserve can do this like right now. They can turn the economy on a dime. They are different. This is monetary policy. Monetary policy is something that is very, very quick to turn. You can, it's like you can change things instantaneously with monetary policy versus, say, fiscal policy. Fiscal policy, on the other hand, is controlled by Congress and the President of the United States. That's kind of where, you know, the Congress, you know, the, you know, the, either the President or a Senator or a Congressman has to come up with some legislation. They have to introduce it to their house, you know, to the House or the Senate. They have to go through committees. They have to think about it. They have to argue about it. And it could take years before they ever change anything. The Federal Reserve says, we're going to, on the other hand, says, we're going to raise the interest rates by a quarter percent. Bang. The next day, that changes, if not that night. So they can do things very quickly with the monetary policy. So in your book, they have four different ways that they control this. One of the ways that they control, and think of money, money as any other commodity. It's like a great big pot of something. You know, when we talk about, by the way, the amount of money that's in the system for us to use, keep in mind that it's not only for housing. People borrow money to run their business. They borrow money to buy cars, motorcycles, airplanes, go to college. So all of the people that are borrowing money are committed, are, are competing for a limited source of funds. And where do those funds come from? Those funds typically are coming from investors. You know, one of the biggest debtors that we have now, or people that we owe money to, are other countries like China. Okay, we owe money to them. We're buying, they're buying our T-bills. Why do they buy our stuff? Because they feel the United States is a good investment. Okay, so keep that in mind. We're competing with everything else. So anyway, what are some of the ways that they can control it? There are four basic ways that they talk about here. Number one, by buying and selling government T-bonds and securities. Okay? Now, the way the federal government finances its debt, okay, now where they get their income from is from taxes. So when we pay our federal income tax, which is a, a large source of revenue for the federal government, what they do is they use that money to pay the salaries, the programs, uh, you know, maybe, you know, all, all of the things that run the federal government. Now, we also have other kinds of money that comes into the government besides federal income taxes. We have things that come in as a result of selling gasoline, you know, like gas, um, 
taxes on gasoline, taxes on other kinds of things. But the way the government gets money coming in the door is by charging taxes. That's their revenue. If they spend more money than they receive, it's kind of like us. <laughs> if we only make $2,000 a month in income and we want to buy that brand new car and we say, you know what, $2,000 a month is just enough for us to be able to make our you know, put food on the table and buy clothes and get to and from work. You know, if we want to buy a new car, we're going to have to go ahead and finance it. Okay, well, the federal government's in the same situation. If they turn around and spend more money than is coming in the door, they have to finance it. And what they do is they do they do something called selling T-bills and bonds. T-bills are typically short-term types of devices. In other words, they're, you know, in other words, they're paid off typically, hopefully, in a fairly short period of time. Bonds, on the other, are longer term. What happens is, is if the government sells T-bills and bonds, it's like saying to the investment community, here is a piece of paper for $100,000. When I give this to you and back it with the full faith of the United States government, I want you to lend me some money. Okay, So that, if we sell them, that's how we get money coming in the door to do what? To pay our bills. Okay. So that's how, and when, when they do that, by the way, what the federal government does when they send, sell T-bills or bonds, they actually are competing in that marketplace just like everybody else is. And because they are usually considered to be a more safe, secure investment, what they do is they take funds away from other kinds of uses of money, such as buying houses, buying cars, or whatever, because they, they, have a, they pay a a good interest rate backed by the U.S. government, and therefore they dry the funds up. Okay. On the other hand, so it's a way that the that the government can take money out of the economy, take money out of our pockets. Okay. On the other hand, if they want to put money into the economy, what they do is they say, you know what, we will buy back those bonds and those T-bills. So that means the government takes money out of their pocket, gives it to the investor, the investor turns around and gives us a piece of paper, and now there's more money in the economy. So that's one of the ways the Federal Reserve can control the supply of money. Okay. The second way they can do it is by raising and lowering the reserve requirements. These are the reserve requirements that the member banks have. The way you have to think about reserve requirements is reserve means reserve. <laughs> Essentially what happens is if I walk in the door to a bank like Wells Fargo, and I give them $1,000, okay, the way that they earn money on that $1,000 is by relending it out to somebody else. What they do is they say, give me your money. I'll put it in the bank. I'll make sure it stays nice and dry and it's clean and it's a nice air-conditioned place. We'll do all that. And we will pay you a rate of interest on that. We'll pay you, say, 2% per year, Okay. Now, the way that they make money is they turn around and they lend that money back out to who? To somebody that maybe wants to get a car loan, uh, a, uh, a loan to buy real estate, or something like that. Now, what they do is they rent, do they, do they, do they um, loan it back out again at the same rate that you ha are paying, being paid? No. You may be paying 2%. They're maybe charging the home buyer 4 or 5 or 6%. The difference in that is something called profit. That's how they make their money. Now, when you think about it, if you turn around and get the money coming in from the people and if you lent all of the money back out again, you're really, as a banker, in a dangerous position 
because if any calamity happens, you know, the, you know, so, you know, the, something happens in the community and people lose their jobs and they start taking money out of the bank, you're eventually going to run out of money. Or maybe people don't make their payments on time. Is that a possibility? Yes. Do maybe people file bankruptcy? Yes, where you're not going to get your money back. So consequently, you have to have a certain amount of money put aside for those things. And those are called reserve requirements. So essentially what happens is the Federal Reserve will say, hey, listen, when, when Pat walks in the door and gives you that $1,000, I want you to take 5% of that, which is 50 bucks, and put it aside. Don't lend it out. So in case something happens, you're going to start building up this fund that you can use to meet those other obligations. Now, if I have, if I have to take $1,000 coming in and take 5% out of $50, that means I can only lend out 950 bucks. If the Federal Reserve tomorrow comes back and tells me, oh, wait a minute, we changed our mind. We think that we want you to up the reserve requirement from 5 to 10%. Now what happens is they've got to put $100 away. It can only lend out 900 So in other words, that's another way that the Federal Reserve controls how much money is in the supply system by raising and lowering that reserve requirements. That's another one. Third way is by raising and lowering the discount rate that member banks pay. Okay. And what that essentially means is that if I am a bank and I am a member of the Federal Reserve System, I need to borrow money just like everybody else does. I borrow money overnight in order to meet my financial obligations. You know, somebody comes in, I have to meet a payroll, you know, I have to meet a payroll. Somebody has a line of credit that they're going to buy something, inventory, so I've got money coming out the door. This is all short-term stuff. So what ends up happening <coughs> is that I, as a bank, I'm going to need to borrow money from someplace else. That happens to be the Federal Reserve. That's the central bank. Consequently, what they can do is they can control how much money is in the supply system by what they charge me as interest rate. If I only have to pay 2%, you know, I have a certain amount. If they raise it to 4%, I have less money. I'm paying money out. Okay, so that's another thing. The last thing that they can do is by changing the margin requirements or the percentage loaned on stocks and bonds. Uh, what this amounts to is that if, let's say, for example, I have stock. You know, like let's say I have $100,000 worth of stock in Microsoft. And I want to buy some more stock. Okay, just like a house, I can pledge that stock as collateral for the loan. Now, when I pledge that, they go in, they say, hmm, I'm going to check the market today, and the market says to me today that, you know, Microsoft at that many shares is worth $100,000. That's what it's worth. So our requirements are that we'll lend you, say, 50% of that money or 60% of that money. So in other words, they're not going to give me $100,000. I'm not going to give them $100,000 in collateral, and they're going to lend me $100,000. They're going to give me some percentage of that. That's the margin requirement. And so what they can do is they can raise and lower how much that requirement is. And also, the other thing, too, is they're constantly monitoring that. So let's say, for example, Microsoft's stock value goes down. That means the value of that collateral is going down. So they can say to me, hey, you need to do something about that. You need to put more money up. You need to pay us back. You need to do something. So that's what we're talking about, margin requirements. And they really enforce that very strictly because that's one of the things that got us into big trouble in the 1929 stock crash. People would take and buy stock that was inflated in price based on silly, stupid expectation earnings. They would then turn around and pledge that stock to buy more stock. 
and pledge that stock to buy more stock. And they were building this entire portfolio based on a bunch of cards that would just essentially crash. And that's what happened. When something happened, boom, the whole market came down. So that's why we have these requirements when we borrow this money. Okay, so that's what the Federal Reserve does. That's a quick and dirty explanation of it. A couple other things that they talk about in here is that they talk about that we, the Federal Reserve, this is just one of the indicators that they look at. They look at something called the domestic, a gross domestic product. Okay, so what they're doing is they're looking at how much we as an economy are producing. And so you'll read this in the newspaper all the time. You know, there'll be indicators in the business section of the newspaper. You'll hear them on, new, on the news. The GDP or the GMP or whatever it is is going up. It's going down. We have, we have a negative, uh, you know, we have, uh, uh, what is it, uh, an imbalance in trade with another country. We're buying more of their stuff than we're selling them. So we're always getting these economic indicators. So what we need to do as a real estate professional is follow these. This helps us understand what's going on in the real, in the economy as a whole and how it may have an effect on the real estate industry. For example, uh, one of the uh, people that I happen to know, his name is Wally Borland. He works for Viatech Mortgage. He puts out a newsletter that comes out every couple weeks that talks about what the Federal Reserve is doing, is the interest rates up or down, what's happening with the gross domestic product, you know, what's happening with the balance of trade, how that may affect what's going on within the real estate industry, just to keep all of us informed about what's happening. So just to give you an idea, this is one of the indicators. There's a whole stack of them, but it says gross domestic product is a measure's economic activity. This says we can monitor growth in our economy and the influence of the Fed by watching closely any changes in the gross domestic product. Uh, the gross domestic product, the GTP, is the total value of all goods and services produced in the economy during a specific period of time. It serves as a kind of monetary barometer that shows us the rate in the areas of the greatest growth. So they are monitoring all kinds of different things. We'll hear about things like are we selling more tools? Are we, are, are, are inventories growing? They'll say business inventories grew. Business inventory shrank. Businesses decide to spend more money on building new plants and equipment. All these things are indicators to what direction the economy goes. And in a lot of cases, it has to do with the confidence of the business. For example, we as consumers will, if we feel confident that we are going to keep our jobs, we're not going to lose our jobs, we will be more confident in spending our money we will be more willing to take a risk. If I think or feel fairly confident that I'm not going to lose my job, then I might be more willing to buy a car. If I think I'm going to lose my job, I would be less willing to buy a car. The same thing with businesses. Businesses may very well say, you know what, we will produce more products because we feel confident that the economy is going to, we're going to be able to sell them, that people, businesses, and consumers will buy them. So in other words, we look at those indicators all the time. Uh, changing interest rates, they, they have such a dramatic effect on the real estate economy, it's not even funny. Uh, if the interest rates, for example, go down, if they went down today by 2 or 3%, I mean some dramatic amount, you would find that immediately people would be refinancing existing loans, so there'd be a huge flurry of people going in and 
There'd be business for appraisers. They wouldn't be able to keep up with the demands. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the real estate agents would have people standing in line to buy houses. Uh, home inspectors would be swamped. Uh, termite guys would be running behind schedule. Okay, there'd be a lot of activity. So, in other words, if interest rates drop, that has such a huge, immediate, dramatic effect on, on the housing industry. We as consumers a lot of times feel that if interest rates get into a certain area, that if we do not perform, do not buy at that point in time, we're going to lose our opportunity. So usually people will snap, start snapping stuff up. Also, they'll want to get out of the higher rate interest loans. They'll refinance. So, I mean, it'll be really good for the economy, okay? Conversely, if the interest rates change, all of a sudden houses sitting on the market for a long period of time, Contractors are not doing building houses anymore. Uh, you know, people are unemployed. Uh, you know, uh, the um, you know the roofers are looking for work. Uh, you know, on and on and on. The landscapers are, are are you know out trying to figure out how to hustle to cut the neighbor's lawn to make some money. I mean, it, it just the interest rates are so sensitive, and the reason why is because we cannot afford to buy as individuals those houses for two, three, four hundred thousand dollars. We need that financing. If we don't have that financing, we're dead in the water because we don't have that money in our pocket. Okay. So anyway, talking about that, that has a huge effect on the industry. Shopping for a loan. Let me just see how this, uh, what this looks for. We're going to talk about shopping for a loan. Uh, one of the things that I've always recommended to people, and this might be my bias or my feelings, is that if you are going to look for a loan, probably the best place for you to start, for you to start, doesn't mean that you're going to go there and get your loan, but people ask me this all the time, is go to some place that you feel comfortable. If you're dealing with it, and I don't mean to get the loan there, I mean to start your research. So if you have a bank that you deal with all the time, go in there. Say Hi. <laughs> I'm looking to, you know, I'm one of your members. I'm looking to buy a house. Uh, I'd like to find out what kind of loan programs you have. Here's my situation, you know. I'm married. I have two kids. My wife works. This is our income. We own a house. We don't own a house. Whatever it happens to be. And you hopefully sit down and feel comfortable with them. And they'll be able to tell you, hopefully, what kind of loan programs are available for you to get. Now, keep in mind that hopefully you're dealing with somebody that is knowledgeable because there are a whole stack of different types of loan programs. You know, there's VA, FHA, CalVet, conventional loan programs. There are special programs based on the fact of what you do, whether you're a first-time buyer or you, maybe you were a first-time buyer or maybe you sold something and there's been a period of time that's lapsed, like maybe three years, and now you qualify again as a first-time buyer. There are all sorts of programs, and what you want to be doing with, hopefully, in the end, is sitting down with somebody that's extremely knowledgeable on the entire loan business. Okay, but start with something you know. What that does is it sets a baseline. It sets a reference point for you. So you can say, you know, I'm a member of Wells Fargo Bank. I went in, and this is what they told me. They could lend me this amount of money. This would be the interest rate. This would be the discount points or whatever. So you have a reference point. And make sure you get all the details. Then you can go ahead and start shopping, okay, back and forth. Now, what they do, oh, one of the things here that they talk about is loan-to-value just, and I think we've probably mentioned this before, loan-to-value just means how much money are you going to put down on the property if you're buying it and how much money you're going to borrow, 
Okay, so if you're buying a house and you, for example, make it simple so Pat can do the math. If you're doing, buying a house and the house is $100,000 and you don't, and uh, typically you don't want to buy any kind of special private mortgage insurance or anything like that, you have to put down at least 20% down and you can finance up to 80%. That's pretty much the general rule of thumb. That's the kind of loans that Fannie Mae will buy if they're created. So in other words, in that case, you put $20,000 down, you finance $80,000. That's the most simplest thing, okay? There are other kinds of loan programs out there, but typically on the conventional side, if you're going to put any less than 20% down, you're going to have to have something called private mortgage insurance. If you are uh, in the government area, such as VA or FHA, those programs typically you can put substantially less money down. In fact, I think I've mentioned in here in other classes many times that usually a lot of us, those are the kinds of programs we go to first when, because we have no money. <laughs> we have no money in our pocket. We need some help buying them. Okay? So anyway, that's loan to value. Now, when you get ready to get the loan, the steps in obtaining the loan, and by the way, uh, FHA, uh, Federal Housing Administration has some really excellent website documentation that walk you through all of these steps. I can't say enough about that website that FHA has. I mean, they go through how to apply for a loan, how to buy a house, what does a broker do, what does an appraiser do, the excellent website to go there. Uh, but anyway, the first thing that you're going to be doing when you get ready to get a loan is you're going to fill out an application. We'll talk about a little bit in detail of what that application is. It's going to ask you where the property is located, how much you're paying for it. Is there anybody else that's buying the house with you, how much you make, how much they make, where your sources of income happens to come from, what you owe, so on and so forth. So you're going to fill out a loan application. I will tell you that part of that loan application is probably going to require documentation to substantiate what you're saying. So what they typically will do on basic loans, if you want to get the best rate you can, is they may very well say to you, where do you work? You tell them. They're going to say, I want to have your pay stubs for the last couple pay periods. They may, for example, ask you, depending upon the loan, for your income tax statements because they want you to justify. If you're saying that you earn that much money, they're saying, I want to see your statements to show me that you're making this amount of money. If you're getting money coming in from another source, such as if you're, if you're receiving alimony or child support, they may very well want documentation to show that you are receiving it. Conversely, if you're paying it out, they want documentation to show that you're required to pay it out. If you're getting money from a retirement plan, they want justification for that. Okay? Uh, if you get, no matter what it is, you stay on that form. You kind of have to keep in mind that you probably are going to have to provide some kind of documentation to justify and to substantiate that you actually, what you're saying is correct. Okay? So, in my opinion, when you fill out that loan application, that's only the first step. In fact, in a lot of cases, one of the things that makes loans drag behind is because people don't get their documentation ready. They go in, they fill the application out, they give it to the loan officer. The loan officer gives them a bunch of stuff, a bunch of information, including a list of stuff they need. They leave figuring, okay, I applied for the loan. Didn't hear where the loan officer said to them, oh, by the way, I need your income tax statements, your pay stubs, your alimony, blah, 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 blah. And they don't get it. And the people are sitting around waiting and wait, waiting and waiting and waiting. And about 10 days go by and they call the loan officer and say, I'm, I'm, where's the stuff? You know what I mean? So it's important that you know what it is that you need. 
That's part of the process, justifying what you make in the property. Uh, the second thing is, is that they're going to do some initial screening. And here they say the application generally receives a preliminary screening to determine if there are any obvious glaring reasons why either the prospective borrower or the property could not qualify for the loan. In other words, they may very well look at it and say, you know what, you want to buy this property, but you know, based on the income that you're telling us that you make, there's absolutely no way you're going to qualify for that loan. Okay. The process is accomplished by checking your credit. So if you've had some major effect in your credit, they may say to you, you know what, that interest rate that we quote is for somebody that has a very good credit rating. You have a little bit of a problem with your credit rating here, and consequently, we can lend you the money, but you're going to pay a higher rate of interest. And because of that, you can't really financially qualify to buy the house because of the higher rate of interest. So you need to know that. Uh, this analysis is followed by a professional appraisal of the property and an in-depth investigation of the credit background of the applicant. When we talk about appraisal, by the way, we're talking about a licensed real estate appraiser. Most of these loans are sold on the secondary market. So we're talking about somebody that is licensed, in many cases, by the Office of Real Estate Appraisers, OREA in the state of California, that's going to go out and take a look at the house. They're going to visit the house. They're going to take pictures of the house. They're going to take a look at, you know, how it's constructed. They're going to take measurements. They're going to want to know the square footage. They're going to look at the neighborhood. They're going to see where the property is located. Uh, is it next to the freeway? Is it in a noise zone? Is the property values increasing or decreasing in the neighborhood? What's basically going on? And uh, they're going to finally then drive by and take a look at other properties. They're going to use as comparables. And then they're going to write a formal written report that's going to state what they believe their professional opinion is to as to the value of the property. And they're going to justify how they came up with that with all of the comparables and all of the math and all of the documentation. And they're going to submit that to the lender. Uh, the appraiser uh, or appraisal is very, very critical because if the appraiser comes back and says, hey, the property is not worth 300000 the loan's not going to go forward. And typically, you may see that, especially in an area where people are moving from another community. Like, for example, if people come from, from say, the Bay Area, as we call them, or less Los Angeles, they may have sold a three-bedroom, one-bath house down there for $700,000. They move up here, and they take a look at a house that might be, you know, like a four-bedroom, three-bath house with a three-car garage, and they compare them, and somebody maybe has a price on it, and it's over market. But the reason why they think it's a good deal is because they're comparing this house versus what they sold. Okay. In fact, I can take you to several websites uh, like Realtor.com and compare different communities throughout the United States, like Oklahoma City as an example, or in Louisiana, where you can get gorgeous houses for maybe $175,000, $180,000. I mean, really beautiful homes for that price. Here, you would ba basically be lucky if you got a mobile home on a piece of property for the same price. Okay, so it really depends where the property is located. That's why appraisal is also important because it helps you as a consumer justifying your own mind to make sure you're not making a mistake when you buy the house. You'd hate to buy a house only to find out that after you bought it, you overpaid for it, you know, by 50, 60 grand. The other thing as part of the analysis we call is they're going to look at your capacity. And I look at this as two things. One is your capacity, meaning do you have the ability to make those payments. That's primarily looking at your income from all the various sources that you have and how much you owe. 
Okay, that's why in some cases a lender may say, you know what, if you pay the car off, you would be able to afford the house. Okay, but you're looking at do you have enough, do you earn enough money? Desire, on the other hand, is your credit rating. You could make two hundred thousand dollars a year, but your desire, you may find out that person that makes two hundred thousand dollars a year doesn't make any payments on time at all. Okay, in fact, I am never necessarily impressed with somebody that always seems to have the latest toy. You know, they drive the expensive car. You know, they have a car. They're making $500 a month payments. On top of that, because it's a high risk to being stolen, they're paying another $200 a month in insurance or more. You know, then they're putting gas in the thing, you know, and it's, you know, they're getting 20 miles or 15 to 20 miles to the gallon. To me, you know, who are they trying to impress? You know, I mean, you find out to go to and from work every day on a monthly basis is costing them over $1,000 a month between the car payments, the insurance, the maintenance, and the gas. You know, I mean, is that a wise decision? I don't know. To me, it's not, you know. So I'm never necessarily impressed. I'm more impressed with people that, you know, try to really maximize what they basically have. That's, the, you know, but again, you know, other people are impressed. They say, oh, that's a great, beautiful Mercedes-Benz in the yeah, and then next month you see the guy gets the car towed away because he can't afford the payments, you know. Okay, after you apply for the loan, then there is going to be something called processing. A loan, um, um, if a loan analysis proves favorable and the financing items are acceptable all, to all parties, it is then time to get the terms of the agreement down on paper. Processing involves typing up the loan documents, preparing the necessary disclosure statements, and issuing instructions to the escrow officer. When you get a loan, by the way, from a lender, in most cases, usually, especially on the sale of a piece of property, okay, it may be a little different on a refinance where the bank may be handling, you know, you signing the paper. I've done it in both ways. For example, I've bought a house. You go to the, you know, where you go there, you're getting a brand new loan. You go to the title company, sit down with an escrow officer. You sign all the documentation, you know, the two page, you know, two or three inches thick worth of paper. You sign them all off. They're all notarized. Okay, so what happens is the lender prepares those documents, submits them to the escrow office. The escrow officer has you sign them and then turns them back to the lender. Okay? I have also done the same thing at banks, both Bank of America and Wells Fargo over the years, where you go in, you make the loan with the loan officer. They have the documents drawn. You sit down with them and sign them, and then they'll either notarize them, or in one case, they took me down to the local UPS store, and I signed them there, and the guy in the UPS store stamped them. Okay, we even have where people are going out, and they call them, por uh, not portable, but uh, uh, I can't think of the right word. They're people that are uh, mobile, mobile notaries, mobile loan servers. So you may actually find that you get a loan from someplace, and somebody like maybe, you know, me will show up and have you sign a bunch of papers and stamp them off, okay? But again, it's the lender that makes the loan package and submits it to these people. Uh, the escrow is going to be all the paperwork that's involved. And when I say all the paperwork, I mean all the paperwork. I mean, you may be signing stuff in there that involves the lender, uh, deeds of trust, notes, all kinds of stuff. The escrow officer is taking care of that. So it says escrow, all the paperwork on the loan transaction ends up in the escrow, along with all the other contracts involved in the purchase of real property. The trustee and the promissory note are signed and passed along at the escrow company where uh, the deal is closed, okay? I think we talked about this before. This is a critical function. This is the last part of the deal. This is really getting down to the last couple days. 
In other words, if everything goes successfully here, probably in the next two or three days, the house is actually, you actually get the keys to the house. If you're refinancing the house, you're probably getting the money. Okay, really critical phase. That's why I always say good real estate agents show up at the escrow so that if there's any question the client has, and kind of keep this in mind, if you're the agent, you've been working with these people. You know all of the <laughs> – if you've been working with somebody like me, you know that I'm a nut for details, okay? You know that I need to understand that kind of stuff. And so you'll know that maybe if I don't understand, you need to explain it. On the other hand, you may have another client that, you know, you're sitting there and explaining things, and their eyes are turning around, and they really could care less. You, you as an agent need to be there to know how it goes. You would not want to have the whole deal blow up at the last minute because the client didn't understand something. Very critical phase. Uh, after that, that's closed and the escrow officer records all the, tra all the documents and uh, sends the money out, then there's servicing. Servicing is where you're actually making your loan payment. So it says loan servicing involves mailing monthly loan statements, collecting payments to see um, loan payments, and seeing if all the re records are kept up to date. Some lenders service their own loans, while others hire independent mortgage companies to handle the paperwork for them. Loan service, servicing also involves all correspondence for late and delinquent payments. So it's not uncommon, for example, for you to have a loan with one company, get all done filling out all the documents, record the documentation, record it, get your money, and maybe start making your payments to that bank, and then get a notice in the mail and find out that the service, that the loan has been sold or that the servicing has been sold to somebody. And they'll say, oh, by the way, for now on, starting with next month payment, send it to, and they'll give you the name of the company. Okay? But they're the ones that are collecting it. They're remitting it back. You know, uh, if you have impound accounts, they may be collecting your money and paying fire insurance, paying uh, um, uh, taxes. You know, they're taking care of the servicing of the loan. Right? So that's the last phase of it. Um, again, they talk on this one right here. They talk about qualifying, if you will, for the loan. They go through all of the necessary steps that you need to be aware of when you're qualifying for the loan. All really good real estate agents will be working with their clients to make sure that they're aware of this process, aware of you know, what the requirements are so that the clients go there. Remember, a lot of times today people are very busy. Most of the time nowadays, both the husband and the wife, if you're married, are both working. And on top of that, if they're not working, they're taking care of the kids or something else is going on. So the amount of time that they have available to go monkeying around at the lender is limited. And every time something is not done, that delays the transaction. So consequently, you as a real estate agent, and I talk to you as an agent, you want to make sure that your clients, to the best of your ability, are prepared for the day they go in to get the loan. And so what you want to do is have a list of the common types of documents that they would need. And if possible, if you're working with a buyer, that you've actually had that buyer maybe sit down and start discussing a loan with a lender before they actually even make the purchase offer. In fact, that's a good way to make a strong purchase offer is to say my client has already been reviewed by ABC Bank and they have approved them for this amount of money. So you know that it's somebody that's a serious candidate for, to buy the property. Okay, that can help you actually in your negotiation process. Okay, but anyway, 
This suffices to say I could go through a lot of details, but you're going to need all that documentation to back it up. And the, and the lender will tell you what they are. And keep in mind too that the lender, the lender are not, the lenders are not bad people. <laughs> they are basically fulfilling the requirements that are set forth by that secondary market. If you remember when we talked about, and I get mixed up between classes, but when we talk about that secondary market and Fannie Mae and buying those loans, it's those organizations that say, you know what, hey, we're not going to buy a loan unless you get two, two, two pay stubs, previous pay stubs, or you need to have the income tax statements, or you need to have an appraisal on the property. They're the ones that are requiring that, not the lender. I mean, the lender sometimes will <laughs> sign things to say, I wish I didn't have to do this, but this is a requirement. So what you really want to do is you want to help your clients help your lender or help their lender to get qualified for the loan. It just makes things a lot easier. Also talks about the appraisal of the property right here. Again, same thing. If uh, from a real estate standpoint, you want to do everything you possibly can to help the appraiser, uh, if at all possible. You know, if you're the agent or the client, make sure you're meeting the meeting the appraiser there the day that they go out. Make sure that if they have any questions, they want to know about the property, look at something inside the garage, they want to know something, you can help them answer their questions. And it also does help, by the way, to get your client used to the fact that there is an impression that anyone that walks into the house is going to think the house is worth more if the house looks good. So I always like to say, you know, the minute you decide to sell this house, all right, Make sure that it looks good all the time because you never know. You know, if you can make sure the lawns are cut, the bushes, it's raked up, it's cleaned, it's vacuumed, because that'll help the appraiser. You know, the, you know, it'll help in their mind. If you go in the place as a disaster, it's not going to help that much. So you want to impress everybody that walks in the door. Um, the next thing they talk about in here is something called a RESPA statement. Um, a RESPA statement comes as part of the Real Estate uh, Settlement Procedures Act. The concept behind this, and it primarily, not primarily, but it involves properties that are one to four units. And the concept behind it is to turn around and provide information to consumers. And I think we've talked about this before. Well, I can't remember where we did that, but the idea behind it is to make it so that consumers are aware of what in the world they're getting themselves into. Okay, so part of the fact is that when consumers get ready to get a loan, there's something called the best faith estimate that is provided by the lender. Now, I'm talking about when the consumer gets down and is serious about the loan. I don't mean that they're going out and saying, how much do you charge as an interest rate, and then go to the next guy. I'm talking about when they fill out the loan application. This best faith estimate is something that the consumer can look at, and it's what the lender is doing is they're saying, you know what, based on everything that we know right now, based on everything you're telling us in our knowledge of the market, this is what it's going to cost you to get this loan. And then they're disclosing all of those costs to you. And the concept behind it is that now that you've got this best faith or good faith estimate, you and whoever's borrowing the money with you, if you're married, husband or wife, can sit down and say, okay, well, what is this cost? What is this escrow thing? I've never heard of an escrow. I've never heard of a title fee. What is this recording fee? What is this? What is that? So you have an idea what those costs are. What's good about having that information up front is that you, when you get ready to close it, you're not walking in and say, where did this cost come from? Okay, you know ahead of time. So anyway, it says a lender must give the applicant a HUD booklet that explains closing costs and has 
closing costs and has until three business days after receipt of the loan application to provide a good faith estimate of the actual settlement cost to the borrower. Okay? Uh, the Real Estate uh, Settlement Procedures Act respite disclosure must include the following, what the rate of interest is, what the points are that's charged, any additional loan fees and charges. And remember, we're, that's a broad category. That's a lot of stuff, you know, loan origination, discount fees, all kinds of fees like that. Escrow title allowable costs, which could add up to thousands or more dollars uh, for the l- lender's estimate. So that's what they're telling you up front, so you know what this loan's going to cost you. It says the idea is to alert the bar at the beginning of the loan process to how much cash besides the down payment will be needed to close the escrow. Usually the lender will provide a complete estimate settlement cost from, form along with the loan application. Okay, so what they'll do is they'll give you that and they give you a booklet. And that booklet explains, this, this form is coded, and it explains in detail what an appraisal is or what an escrow is, or what title insurance is, so the consumer can understand every one of those. And it's categories. It's in certain categories, okay? And the consumer should be reading this, so there's no surprises. You know, they should know that. Um, Credit scoring is another thing they talk about here. Credit score, there are three organizations that do credit uh, credit reports. There's uh, TransUnion, Equifax, and... uh, I'll think of the third one in a minute. But what they are is they're looking at the history that you have as far as your monthly payments have been going. So it says credit scoring gives the lender uh, a fast, objective measurement of your ability to repay a loan and make timely credit payments. Notice the word timely. That's why when you're late, it affects your credit score. It is based solely on the information in a consumer credit report maintained at one of the credit reporting agencies. They're going to look at things such as your payment history, what's your track record, is do you make payments on time, okay, or are they late? The amounts that you owe, okay, do you owe MasterCard, Wells Fargo, uh, do you owe a car loan, what is it that you owe? The length of your credit history, very, very important. How long have you actually been making payments? I think uh, in one of the classes I've mentioned this to students years and years ago when I bought my first house. I was uh, uh, 22 years old, I think. Yeah, 22 years old. Bought the house with the idea in mind, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to rent a couple rooms out. And that's exactly what I did. I bought the house. The house at today's prices, this sounds cheap, was 16950 My monthly payments were on it were 130 a month, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. I rented two be- two rooms out. One I got 55 a month. The other 65 a month. That gave me 120 a month. I made up the $10 a month difference. And then we split things like utilities and stuff. When I, in order for me to rent these rooms out, I couldn't say to these guys I was in the service at the time. I couldn't say, oh, by the way, just come into the room and lay on the floor. I had to give them things like a bed and a dresser and stuff like that. So I remember I went around and I looked at a lot of different places where I could get this stuff, and one of the places I went to was Levitt's. Same Levitt's that's there out near McClellan Air Force Base. It hasn't changed in all these years. I met a salesman in there, walked around. He said, hey, what do you want? And he showed me this. He showed, I said, yeah, I want one of those. I want one of those. Got it all done. He says, I said, well, now how do I pay for it? Didn't know anything, you know, of course. He says to me, well, you can finance it. Sounds good to me. I'm buying a house. I finance that. I'll finance this. So he goes in the back, takes a loan application, disappears for about 10 minutes, comes back. He's got this look on his face. 
He says, well, I got some news for you. He says, we've got a problem with your credit. I said, what's the problem? He says, well, the problem is you have no credit. You've never borrowed any money. You don't owe anybody anything. There is no history in your system. Now, when you think about it, I was able to buy a house, okay, with no credit. You know, I just used some money I had saved in savings bonds as a down payment to buy the house, but I couldn't buy a dresser or a bed, okay, because I had no credit history, all right? I was able eventually to get some beds through Sears and Roebuck on what they call revolving charge account at the time, but the fact is is that I had no history, so I couldn't borrow the money, okay? Um, so they'll look at your history, and let me see what else. Your history, any new credit, are you taking on any more debt? In other words, is this going to be something? There's a difference between, hey, I'm going to get this loan, and when I get this loan on this uh, refinance on the house, I'm actually going to go ahead and pay off all these existing loans. And in reality, what's going to happen is, is that my monthly payments are actually going to go down. That's why we see all these, these programs on TV, you know, refinance your loans, all this other stuff. So if I'm taking on more, they're going to get worried about it, okay? And then finally, the types of credits in use. Is it a healthy mix? You know, my, in other words, healthy mix would be like, do I have a lot of stuff on credit, you know, 15 18% loans? Is it really kind of stupid stuff that I've got, or is it something that's really healthy, like a car, and you know, where it's a reasonable loan? I'm, I'm buying stuff that I would need. You know, they'll look at stuff like that. And it all depends upon how long my history's been. I mean, I could turn around, for example, at 55 years old, like I didn't go out, I, although I paid it off and get a motorcycle loan. But maybe if I was younger and had a lot of credit cards out there, maybe they would look at me a little different. I don't know. Okay. Um, finally, down here, we're getting close to the end. It says if uh, it says that the most widely used credit bureau scores are developed by the Fair Isaacs Company. These are known as FICO scores. Uh, the one thing I want to tell you about FICO scores, what it is, is this FICO is actually the name of a company. What they've done is they developed an economic model. This economic model takes data in. And the, the model has been theoretically, if you will, statistically proven that it can, is a good predictor that if based on, you know, that they can predict the probability of people making their payments on time. So it looks at things like credit history, what you owe, and all that other stuff. You don't know what that model, how it operates internally. In fact, everybody's always trying to guess at it. You know, like, well, if I pay my cards down, it'll improve my score. Well, we don't really know. We're guessing at that, okay? But the point is, is that this economic model is trying to take all of these factors into consideration and then hopefully predict the, pro you know, in other words, how likely is it that Pat is going to continue to make his payments on time? As a result of that, that pumps out a score, a three-digit score. And that score is really, depending upon where that score is, is whether or not they're going to give us a loan or not, or if they do give us a loan, how what kind of an interest rate we're going to pay. Okay. So with that, we're pretty close to the end. We only have a couple more seconds to go. The next time we're going to finish up here, we're going to talk a little bit more. I'll be showing you more about the loan application, talking a little bit more about that so that we make sure everybody understands that. And with that, I think we're pretty close to the end. So have a nice day, and we'll see you back here the next time for the next show.